Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. Hi, I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Well, what a crazy twist that we have kept going with this podcast. This is episode six, everyone. We have made it to episode six, and we have made it to the modern era. (laughs) The modern Trek era has arrived, and we right along with it. And we are so lucky to be doing this episode on Star Trek Discovery's pilot, The Vulcan Hello, a week after the premiere of season three of star trek discovery yeah we did not plan this at all like but we're I'm not so even happy joking. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we found out when discovery was coming out we just sung our praises to the star trek <laughs> prophets <laughs> as a yes, thank you <laughs> yes we prayed to ben cisco yep. and uh, and others so we won't talk about the new episode of discovery obviously on this podcast no. but i have seen it and same Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, we saw it. We both saw it a couple days ago. And the next episode comes out this Thursday? Thursday. But the new episode will already be out by the time we release this podcast. Oh my god, so there'll be two episodes. Wow. So I just, there's a time to catch up on Discovery. It's, it's right, right now. now. If you have not seen Discovery and you are a Star Trek fan, what is happening? You yeah. need to watch it. And it's also, so good. don't let the subscriptions get you down. We have had three big chunks of star trek and now there's been a huge gap between 2005 when enterprise ended i mean star trek discovery premiered in 2017 the day we got our tattoos tattoos Woo-hoo. this uh the show was pitched in 2015 and it took two years to get it ready to be premiered in september and there was a lot going on and a lot of back and forth. Personally, I was seeing a lot of Star Trek news and I did not believe that there would ever be a series out because there yeah. were so many false starts and so many news articles I would read that say, oh, they have a director. Oh, no, they don't. Oh, they got the cast. Oh, no, they don't. And so by the time I was hearing about the launch of this new CBS All Access, so this new viewing platform, and that Star Trek Discovery was going to be the headliner for it, I was very surprised, and honestly, I did not believe it. I'm the type of person with fandom news that I don't believe it until I see it watching it, (laughs) because I'm a Harry Potter fan, and we've been fooled before, let me tell you. So the people who end up creating the show are Brian Fuller and Alex Kersman. And you might know Brian Fuller because he was a writer on Deep Space Nine. He was an executive producer in Voyager. And he also helped create series and write series like Hannibal, which Rian and I really like. Yep. Um, Pushing Daisies. Pushing Daisies, yeah, as well as Dead Like Me. So we got a big name on this new Star Trek show. And then also with Alex Kurtzman, but he was also a co-writer on Star Trek, the 2009 reboot, and Mm. on Into Darkness. He did not do Beyond, but the first two of those movies. Which I will briefly say that those movies came out in this gap, in this 10-year gap. Um, Yes, in the new Trek era. (laughs) Yeah, in the new Trek era. Yes, yes. So, yeah, we've got these two people creating this show. And initially, Amazon, Netflix, and Showtime was willing to pay a lot of money 
to have Star Trek Discovery on their platforms. Mm. In this new digital age where there's really, you know, we don't really talk about Paramount or even like CBS as a TV channel, there's not much going on besides your usual news and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so they, especially in 2017, really wanted to get in the game and on the same level with Netflix and all of the other Hulu, all the other streaming services. And so ultimately, that is why they did not end up going with Netflix or Showtime or Amazon, because they wanted to create CBS All Access and make people pay for Star Trek. Mm. Now, this is kind of a gamble because... People might not think that Star Trek's worth it (laughs) to pay that fee, you know, to get behind the paywall to see what the shows are like. I know personally, most people who I know who started watching Discovery when it came out waited until all the episodes were out and then just paid for a month and cruised through it and then canceled their subscription. Mm -hmm. I know there was a lot of hate initially directed towards this decision. Through that. And something I want to add to that is I think there's kind of two ends to this fan spectrum. We've got the casual fans who are not willing to pay for CBS, and then we've got the diehard fans who will literally sell their souls to anything Star Trek related, which is me. That's sort of the category I fall into. This was the reason why Disco was getting so much hate was because people were thinking, oh, sure, give us new Star Trek, but make us pay for it. You know, how cheap are you (laughs) Um, type of thing. (laughs) Today, when I think about CBS All Access, I am kind of used to it now. And there's enough of, there's enough good shows on it that I can justify having a subscription or justify stealing uh, my grandma's subscription. Yeah, shout (laughs) Um, out to our grandma. Yeah, shout out for (laughs) supplying us with our Star Trek. (laughs) But I think people are now more convinced, not only that Discovery is a good show, but also that CBS All Access is worth it as a platform. But it is interesting going forward to see how television is going to be changing. I think Star Trek is very interesting to track because it's been on air for so long. Absolutely. And we've been viewing it in so many different contexts. So we have all these people. We have Brian Fuller, Alex Kurtzman, also Nicholas Meyer, who's a very important person to the Star Trek universe because he wrote and directed Star Trek The Wrath of Khan as well as Undiscovered Country. Woo! Woo! Ooh! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, maybe. Ooh! Ah! Uh, So some quotes that I took while I was doing some research that I thought were really important is that their goals was that they really wanted to make sure that they were maintaining authenticity Mm. as well as having clarity and cleanliness in the storytelling. And so I think that's kind of a great thing to keep in mind as we watch this pilot. Is the storyline clear? Is it clean? Are we watching authentic Star Trek that's loyal to the fans? That kind of thing. Uh, we've talked about in previous podcasts, could a new fan watch it? Could an old fan watch it? Mm. I am very excited to get into these details with you, Rihanna, and see where we line up. Ashlyn, what does Star Trek Discovery mean to you? Oh, my heart. <laughs> um, I, I guess I know this is a pilot episode and we're focusing on the first one, but just as a whole, mm-hmm. Discovery means visibility. It takes actors and characters that we still don't know that much about even though we've had all these years of star trek history and it puts them on the main screen on the main bridge and i also really love discovery because it normalizes having females on the bridge and uh females in every type of command situations 
uh, as well as people of every race and every type of species is mm -hmm. on the bridge. I think one of the coolest things is having Saru in such a high level position. That space is normally reserved for Vulcans or androids. Yep. <laughs> we haven't really had a high level command position be someone of a different species ever. Yeah. Unless you include the animated series uh, oh, little little furry dude icon. at the com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but so to me, Star Trek Discovery means telling the stories of people that we don't necessarily know or think about. Also, I think this show really deals with trauma and emotions in a way that is so beautifully handled and is something that I can look to identify with all the time. Obviously, I have never gone through the situation that Michael Burnham has gone through. Um, but <laughs> what? Your parents weren't murdered by Klingons? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's so weird. But you have to have an orphan if we're telling some kind of dramatic story. Of course. Rihanna. You've got to have a Luke Skywalker. Yeah. What's yeah, the point? Or a Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but to me, Star Trek Discovery has some of the most relatable characters and some of the most important stories we've ever had on Star Trek are being told in the series. And I have really nothing but good things to say about it. Wow, that That's was kind beautiful. of maybe kind of too much of a preview into what this podcast will be. But, we'll, but <laughs> no, it's fine. Yeah. So Rihanna, tell me, what does discovery mean to you? Discovery to me means the first time where as a queer woman, I feel visibly seen in Star Trek spaces. Star Trek has flirted occasionally with gender and sexual identity but has never come close enough for me to feel like they actually care about the lgbtq plus community and this show was the first time where it wasn't subtext it wasn't a tiny flash of sulu's husband in star yeah. trek beyond it wasn't yeah. a trail kissing a woman only because they used to be a man it was outright having two gay characters and then later a lesbian character who are out and proud was so important to me because I feel like that's what Star Trek has been missing in my life all this time is I had to sort of construct through my own gay lens, the Kirk and Spock dynamic, the Garrick and Bashir dynamic, you know, I had to read all these fan fictions to truly get what I wanted. Um, Janeway and Seven. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's so many incredible things they could have done earlier on, but weren't ready for, and the writers weren't going to take that risk. But Discovery did, and it's just such a valuable lesson for me that things do get better, and representation, as you said, gets better. Star Trek's always been a pioneer of representation, starting with Nichelle Nichols, but I think that Nichelle Nichols paved the way for someone like Sonequa Martin-Green. And it really just makes me so proud of where Star Trek is today. I think in that same vein, this kind of ties into, even though we hate the paywall of CBS All Access and we hate low-key all the streaming sites, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that it has been really revolutionary in what it can be shown on television because Absolutely. no longer are there executives that we're reporting to, big white men in the tallest part of the building yep. saying, oh, are we allowed to do this? No, it's, hey, if you have the funding, you can put it on our site. You so know? true. The censorship is way easier to get around with streaming services and that allows shows like Discovery and Sex Education and 
um, Stranger Things and all these different shows to have like queer representation, uh, race representation. Everything that has been denied in the past is now possible with these streaming services. That's a really good point too. Yeah, so I just think it's something to just remember and I think it's something that Star Trek has been waiting for but didn't know it was waiting for for a really <laughs> long time. I always think in Star Trek, if you're not uncomfortable by something because it's pushing your point of view, it's not really Star Trek. Um, Snaps for that. Yeah, I think there's always a way that we can broaden our horizons and open our minds more. And Star Trek is always doing that for me. I always use it as my North Star to guide by. Absolutely. Describe the Vulcan hello as bad as possible. An adrenaline junkie first officer starts a war with the Klingons. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you took mine. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, a first officer who's been triggered by the death of her parents starts a war that didn't need to happen. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. Cool. Here, I'll get another. Okay, one. okay. Another sorry, one. I just snatched no. snatched it. Okay, Ashlyn, describe Discovery's pilot, the Vulcan Hello, as poorly as possible. Starfleet does not shoot first, but Michael Burnham does. That's the one. That's the one. Look no further. (laughs) Oh, wow. We were talking about how Star Trek pushes boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I first, before we talk about anything else, want to talk about the choice of Michael's name. Mm. Michael Burnham. So she's a female and her name's Michael. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Woo. Which is generally like a male name. Mm -hmm. This was something that I was confused by for so long. And I like why don't they just name her like a female name but duh in the future names probably don't even have any gender relationship Mm, to them yeah because we're past the binary i think it's really bold they went boldly in choosing her name and i really appreciate it it makes me low-key want to name my girl michael not that i'm pregnant anyway (laughs) but but if i have a girl i feel like michael would be a really good strong name absolutely i think that that's a great point and something that now when i think of her i could not think of any other name like she's just michael like it's the literal perfect name for her that's genius i had never thought of it that way but that makes total sense well let's talk about this scene then when we have a desert planet (laughs) which looks like so many desert planets we've been on before yeah it actually brought me right back to uh, a lot of deep space nine episodes where kira is with a cardassian in the desert odo and quark are in a desert together it made me think about the next generation episode where Mm. uh, wesley and picard are stranded on a desert planet absolutely we had had water yeah (laughs) Exactly. That is a classic set. Yeah, it's interesting to me that this series begins with the Klingons and not with our main characters. It reminded me a little bit of Deep Space Nine's intro beginning with a Borg attack, but in that circumstance, we still see our one of our main characters within the first few minutes. I think it actually reminded me of Enterprise introduction, mm. you know, where totally. they show the plot and they foreshadow what's to come. For me, not my favorite choice, but 
I think it was fast enough that I didn't get too bogged down in, oh, why are we looking at these Klingons? What's going on? I'm confused because it had a nice transition of the words come in peace being spoken by the Klingon and then being spoken by Michael as the transition is flipped over. I thought that was a clever enough way to do it that I wasn't too upset that it started in a place where I wasn't very comfortable or aware of what was going on because right away you're you're told to read subtitles you're clearly these are some like higher up Klingons <laughs> this is not just a regular bird of prey this is something bigger and you can tell right away that this is going to be sort of the meat of the plot but it sort of took me out of what I expected which I think can be good and can be bad it can be good because you know we expect a Star Trek series to start out with your main bah, people bah, bah. Yeah, Captain's yeah. Log. <laughs> like, yeah. you sort of, you expect that. And so I do like that it defied those expectations, much like a lot of this plot defies the expectations because the characters that we get to know and love throughout the rest of this season, most of them aren't even here in this episode. I agree with you. And I also think that we're supposed to feel confused and we're supposed to be really, uh. But... I think for me, the main reason I didn't like it was because I don't like the look of these Klingons. This is the great Klingon debate of the 20th century, Absolutely. 21st century. <laughs> oh, man. I don't like them. And no. I've seen Discovery now like two and a half times, and I'm, I'm used to them, but I still don't like them. And I respect that Trek is trying to change their look, and I'm sure there's some sort of uh, like retconned explanation, but... I don't like them. Worf was one of my favorite characters in Next Generation. And mm. so to not have the Klingons that I recognize with the grizzled hair and the yeah. eye patch of Gowron, <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just thrown off. And I know that this is a hundred years in the past from the Klingons I'm used to looking at. Obviously the Klingons in original series were not really like the final no. form <laughs> of what the Klingons would eventually look like. So I think that's why I don't really like it. Yeah, it's some, kind of just a cosmetic thing. Yeah, unfortunately. And something I wanted to say about that too is it did feel very much of like the Kelvin timeline Klingons from yes. Star Trek Into Darkness. They yes. have very similar makeup, and I know that that's sort of what this new Trek era is going for. Like you said, it's going for a new look. But Star Trek fans are very, very picky about continuity. Like things have to oh. make sense, and so many of these shows that we're seeing like we talked about last week with our enterprise podcast have to maintain a sense of continuity and utilize things from past history of other shows in order to further it and so i know that the kelvin timeline with the jj abrams movies was able to sort of hop all of that with their utilization of it being an alternate reality yes but that's what confused me a little bit more was because these Klingons are supposedly in the original series timeline yeah, and so not this, in the alternate reality timeline. This is just 10 years before the NC-1701 Enterprise launches. So I guess I'm okay with them trying to update the design. It just seems poor. Like I think what they do with the Andorians in some episodes, how they upgrade different species in other ways. They use more CGI in yeah. this series rather than using the practical makeup yeah. every day like they would do for Worf. I kind of miss, honestly, the practical makeup. Yeah. And it's such yeah. a departure for Star Trek because that was kind of the cornerstone of 
a great deal of Star Trek's aliens was the fact that it took these poor actors hours sitting in a makeup chair getting their face makeup on. Neelix, Phlox, all of these characters, Worf, all the Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> like even yeah, yeah there's there's so many that have have that sort of duty as an actor to be in this face makeup all the time, but it makes it feel like a stronger commitment. There are 15 episodes per season versus like 26, almost 30 episodes per season that they had in Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, all that good stuff. So So that's a lot less of a filming commitment for these actors. Mm -hmm. When they made the transition from original series to Next Gen, they purposefully kept in a lot of the practical effects and have maintained that. The practical effects are important because that was kind of the core of Roddenberry. But, you know, I'm happy to say goodbye if we get a black first officer female and yep. a Asian female captain who we've never had before. Yeah, that's yeah. a great distinction, Ashlyn. And something that I also wanted to talk about was how do you feel about this short form Star Trek with a clear overarching plot, a cliffhanger on the pilot, no two-parter on the pilot. It's just sort of an outright introduction into this world how did you feel and how do you feel now going into discovery knowing that there's only going to be 15 episodes in the season well i can easily remember because it was only a couple years ago as opposed to uh you know longer with Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of these pilots i was pretty grumpy (laughs) honestly i was pretty grumpy because i love star trek so much And the stuff that they have made before this is so special to me and so important that I didn't want anybody to F with it or Mm. mess it up or destroy anything beautiful that we've created. And so I was grumpy that the Klingons looked so weird. I was very happy to see all the diversity on the bridge, though. I'm very excited to have a Malaysian actress who's a captain on the bridge. Michelle Yeoh is amazing. So I'm very excited to see that. I'm very excited to see everything happening on the bridge. But I'm looking for that classic unity and chemistry between the characters. And in the beginning, at least with the rest of the bridge crew, I thought that there was a very strong dynamic between Saru, Michael, and... um, Giorgio. And Giorgio. Mm -hmm. But I felt like the rest of the crew was just kind of thrown in there. Mm. Now, of course, I know what's going to happen in the next episode. (laughs) And so I'm not as worried about that. And I can see the beauty of what they're starting. Yeah. And to answer your question about this new form... Uh, I'm also not mad about it because this is a new type of Trek that is meant to be binged. We've officially entered binge (laughs) Trek. Yes. Where if you're on CBS All Access, you're not just going to watch one episode and then like call it quits. (laughs) Usually you sit down and you're planning to watch a couple. So that's how I feel. Rihanna, how about you? What was your perspective then and now? Yeah, I think because I've grown up in this binge culture nowadays, we've sort of moved away from the weekly episodes. I barely watch any network shows anymore because I don't like waiting a week. I don't like having to remember what was going on in the plot last week, unless it's a one-off, unless they're episodic shows. But with a show like Discovery, I was really 
happy to embrace this short form series but had an elongated overarching plot because those are the kind of stories that I really like to follow is when you're slowly unraveling the mystery mm-hmm. throughout multiple episodes. And it did bring me back to a bit of how Deep Space Nine and some of Enterprise functioned, but on this next level that was already prepared to do this kind of format because we've seen it with Stranger Things. We've seen it with a bunch of shows on Netflix that are very bingeable and you must watch it from start to finish pretty quickly if you want to like maintain an idea of what's going on. But I did really miss the fact that I wasn't going to get 26, 27 episodes in the season, mostly just because I want Star Trek content. I want a lot of it. Yeah, I agree. I think I was ready for a continuous Star Trek, but I just didn't know I was. Yeah. This also, this series makes it incredibly easy for a new fan to jump in. Yes. If you have no idea what Star Trek is, but you know you like action adventure or like the Marvel shows on Netflix are excellent. If you like things like that, you're going to love Star Trek, even if you don't know anything about it. I have no qualms recommending Discovery to any of my friends because it's not a long commitment. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I know you'll come out being somewhat, if not a hardcore Star Trek (laughs) fan, and you'll want to go back and rewatch these other series. I would hope. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of friends who have only seen the Kelvin J.J. Abrams films, and then I recommended for them to watch Discovery first, because Mm. I think that it is the most digestible in tandem with those films. And then, like you said, it allows them to explore more. But I think that, yeah, the time commitment helps people to get into it quicker, and the fact that it is adhering to this sort of binge culture that we're all in now. I have so many thoughts about those Kelvin-verse movies. This is not the place to talk about them. No. <laughs> but I do think that they're just important to acknowledge that without those movies, I don't think we would have this third wave of Star Trek. No. I seriously don't because those movies brought in so many new fans, including us. Our, our family, our parents were into Star Trek, but what really got us so excited about Star Trek was these awesome movies. Yeah, I just have to throw that out there that totally contributed to why we have now three series of Star Trek on TV at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, and that's why I will always be a champion of the Kelvin movies where other people besmirch them or say that they're weak in comparison to other parts of Star Trek because it did allow for a whole new era of fans. And that's so important if you're going to keep Star Trek going. You need young fans as much as you need the older fans. Like, it's it's such a balance that Star Trek has always been excellent at. I mean, how else do you keep a show going? They just had their 50th anniversary a couple years ago. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There's not that many franchises that last this long. Oh, no, absolutely not. So we were talking earlier about the crew dynamics, and I thought we could jump in a bit more to um, Michael and Giorgio's dynamic because Mm -hmm. I think it's something that's really special and something that would be really interesting. I want to hear your thoughts on how you thought the two of them worked together in this episode. I think it's amazing. I think it's wonderful. I think it's almost at the level of Kirk and Spock's dynamic. Mm -hmm. I was really feeling those similar vibes of you feel like they're two people who have known each other for a really long time and you don't need any proof of that you just look at how they're talking to each other and their jokes and you get it and you know that they're friends i think 
just this first scene of them walking around in the desert yeah. is a great example of how tight this pilot is. And if you've mm. listened to these episodes, you know that I love a good tight pilot. <laughs> Woo! The tighter you, the better. Yeah. If it's if the if the writing's well done, you can do anything and it can be justified. Absolutely. And in the scene we see that Michael, despite her years of friendship and serving under Giorgio, she does not trust Giorgio to walk them the right way. <laughs> and she just doesn't trust her. And I think that's really interesting because they've been together for so long. Everything they're expressing about these characters, they're doing in such a subtle way. It shows so much about Michael that despite her being a commander, she still doesn't fully trust Giorgio she also really craves control in the situation. And I think that's something about Michael that we really see in this episode is that she wants control. And man, is she lucky that she has a captain who's so willing to listen to her? Because if Michael was serving under another captain like Picard or Janeway, she would have a terrible interaction with him. Yeah, I found this dynamic to be very strong because their bond is strong and because they do play off each other well as both actors and characters. I was not even questioning the fact that they known each other for seven years. It felt yeah. very much like Giorgio takes Michael in stride. She knows how to deal with her moments of needing to be in control. And she also knows that when Michael's sincere and when she needs to be listened to, like when she comes back after almost being killed and she has all this mm-hmm. radiation sickness and she's on yeah. the bridge and talking about Klingons and Saru is full on calling her delusional and says that she has a concussion. But Giorgio is immediately like red alert because I think that they have been able to read each other well enough. And absolutely, that part was very significant to me. What I also found a very interesting moment for the two of them is that Giorgio is clearly proud of Michael and sees her as this protege. And Michael also respects Giorgio, but is not afraid to challenge her. Like you said, Ashlyn, everything changes when Michael's out there Vulcan gripping Giorgio and causing a full mutiny. But there is still this inherent trust that I feel within them that seems to be shattering at the end of this episode, which is even more devastating when it happens because we've been building up this trust and we really, I've been just adoring their dynamic and it's felt very powerful to me. So when that trust is broken, it hurts even worse. Yes, and I think this is an example of something we have not seen in Star Trek so far and that a lot of shows don't choose to do, but they have kind of a negative arc for Michael. Mm. Even in this episode, I would argue that she's at her best in this first 10 minutes of the episode is when Michael's at her best, Mm -hmm. and we won't see her best again until maybe three or four more episodes after this yeah. because Giorgio is talking to her about a promotion and saying, hey, you're doing so well. You need your own ship. But Michael, the decision she makes after that become just more questionable and more questionable because after she has this interaction with the Klingon where she kills the Klingon full on murder. the ship. Full <laughs> murder. I know she was trying to, it's self-defense, yeah. but like, he fell into her blade is what she says Mm -hmm. oh yike but uh i think after her running with the klingon she is too traumatized to have a clear head after that 
Yeah. And she makes incredibly poor decisions. And so to me, that says, obviously, she's not ready to have her own command because she is still driven by her emotions. And we even see Sarek, who's, of course, the father of control your emotions. <laughs> I think it's fitting that we have a ringer in this episode <laughs> to have Sarek come. So there is a moment when she's talking to Sarek's hologram, asking for advice and he says you are allowing your emotions to get the best of you Mm -hmm. probably something that he said a million times to her and she says my emotional considerations inform my logic essentially and i thought that that was a very interesting take that she's adhering to is this idea that her emotions further her logic which is completely opposite to the teachings of Sirach on vulcan like they're you know i mean that's just completely the antithesis of what vulcans stand for is like emotion must be divorced from logic and not in union and so this is another reason i love the script because that says everything what what you just said is communicated in like one line yeah it works well because we as longtime star trek fans understand vulcan culture very deeply and even people who are watching discovery as their first show can still glean that from this scene and that's why i agree with you ashlyn the writing is so expertly done here clearly done by people who know star trek inside and out which is just so nice i really love that aspect of this yeah, this pilot series did not get the star wars treatment yes <laughs> yeah exactly and so that scene i think is highly fascinating to use a <laughs> vulcan vernacular highly. burnham is illogical in this scene because like you mentioned as one of the things that you like about discovery is that it's informed by trauma and the show doesn't shy away from people's past traumas and i think you're very correct in saying that michael's decisions here are all surrounding the trauma of her parents being killed by klingons you know it brings up this new wound that she hasn't had to deal with yet because no one's seen klingons besides her encounter with them as a child Mm -hmm. and Sarek understands this and he's trying to drive her away from those traumas for her to think clearly but she can't you know and she can't separate the two and that's what's pretty devastating about the end of this episode is the fact that she's in tears talking to Giorgio about this and she's clearly emotionally compromised not Mm -hmm. ready to be in a first officer's position and her fear of losing Giorgio, someone that she's come to think of as a parent, overrides her fear of creating mutiny. You know, I mean, in that moment, Starfleet is not her top priority, Giorgio is, and that's not how Starfleet officers are supposed to act. And we haven't seen a lot of Starfleet officers demonstrate that kind of reckless endangerment of Starfleet values in order to save the one. Like, she's clearly a needs of the one over the needs (laughs) of the many in this moment. I thought that was great and excellent, and I agree with you. I wanted to also mention that this pilot actually has me thinking about the Deep Space Nine pilot where Mm. we followed specifically Sisko's journey. Sisko also had a past trauma. His wife was killed by the Borg and his life was totally put on hold. And so by the time we know Sisko later in the episode when he's on DS9, everyone knows who the Borg is and they know about the destruction that they've caused. Mm -hmm. And so what's unfortunate for Michael is that when she's talking about the attack on the Klingons and how they murdered her parents, people don't really understand. And even the Admiral that they consult later says, oh, we haven't heard from a Klingon in like hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there's one out here randomly in space where you are. 
Yeah. And he's very much dismissive of Michael's experience. And I think that only fuels her mm. because she's the type of person who has clearly fought her way to Starfleet because she had this crazy past and she was lived grew up with Vulcans. So I think she's just in full rebellion mode for most of this episode. And it just shows that she's still young in her journey and she's still reconciling this with herself. And I also think that this is one of the reasons why I was hesitant to like this show in the beginning was because it focused around a character who wasn't the captain. Mm -hmm. And I tend to always love the captain as my favorite character. And so when we're following the path of Michael... I feel mutinous myself yeah. watching and I'm like, hey, but what about Georgia? What's she doing? You know, like I, I want to know more about her and why aren't we having flashbacks with her? And so it did make it harder for me to enjoy Discovery because I was thinking about all these preconceptions I had about Star Trek in mm. my mind. But the story is so interesting that it doesn't really matter. I think it's important just in tracking the arc of Michael and the person that she ends up becoming. That's really fascinating to me because I felt differently about how closely we followed Michael's past. Mm -hmm. To me, I think, yeah, it was interesting that it wasn't in the view, like she isn't the captain, but it actually did remind me a bit of how they introduced a lot of Archer's past, peering yeah. into his childhood, into his experience with, you know, That's but done true. so much more poorly than yeah. Um, yeah. how it's done here. I think it's done beautifully here. Arriving at a point where she's having a dream, learning about Klingons at this Vulcan school on Vulcan, being tested the way that young Vulcans do, which shows directly how Vulcan society expects children to behave and especially expects even a human child to behave and Star Trek 2009 deals a bit with Spock's struggle with Vulcan schooling and choosing this uh, Vulcan Science Academy or Starfleet and you know later on his struggle whether he should take Kolinar or not which is the ceremony to purge all emotions you know so there's these various paths that Spock takes being half human but to see a full human in a Vulcan school being presented with her trauma around Klingons is a very telling point in Michael's life and a perfect choice, I think, for this episode in order to start building background on her. And I found myself just completely immersed in that so much that I didn't really even care about the other characters, mm, which is what made the mutiny so much more devastating to me was because I remember the first time I watched this pilot, I was immediately in love with Michael. I mean, she's this beautiful woman. She's powerful. She's incredibly self-assured but by the end of it you know i think that like you said it's this sort of decay of her morality of this arc here but i understood still where she was coming from because we had those well-placed flashbacks and obviously i understand it now because i've seen the show and i know the depth of which she was not allowed to get over her trauma because of being raised by vulcans as a human just being around vulcan teachings for a kid that young must have been really hard for her to deal with her emotions in a way that's healthy for humans. Yes, it's healthy for Vulcans to do more of a logical placement of emotions and repressions where it needs to be, but humans' brain chemistry is very different mm -hmm. in that way. One other thing I wanted to say about that that I found was really amazing with Martin Green's acting is that she 
was able to ride the line between yes i'm a human being but i've been raised by vulcans because that first scene where she's talking to Giorgio, it feels kind of like we're listening to spock talk you know it's very robotic but like human <laughs> yeah at the same time and it's incredible yeah. because her language is very vulcan and her demeanor is very vulcan but she's also so human, like deeply human, you know? She has this reckless streak 10 miles long, you know? But she is informed with Vulcan teachings. Even though it scratches the surface, I still feel like I understand her really well by the end of it. Definitely. Well, and again, I just want to go back to the writing. When you brought up that flashback when she's a child and she's going through Vulcan school and the computer is basically saying uh wrong wrong Mm -hmm. when she's not answering the questions about the literal murder of her parents yeah the computer just has one response to that yeah as does Sarek when he appears and so that tells you again shows you not tells you that she has never dealt with this trauma in the correct Mm -hmm. way and that is something so great about this pilot because again that's what i want in a pilot is i want to know what the journey is and so just by that scene i'm like oh she's got to get over that yeah or or she's gonna make some mistakes Mm -hmm. and you know she makes mistakes yeah i also just loved that they threw in that scene of her being taught on vulcan because i do i think about the scene from star trek 2009 where Mm -hmm. spock is going through his his schooling and he gets in a fight with those kids and it takes me even further back to the end of Search for Spock when mm. Spock has had his uh, Katra yeah. put back into his mind and the computer's asking him all these scientific questions and then asks, how do you feel? How do you um, feel? No, no, that oh. is not in the end of Search for Spock. That scene is in, I think, the beginning of Voyage Home. Oh, I think you're right. I think it is beginning of Voyage Home. Yes. But I do wonder if they purposefully chose this scene to foreshadow some more of Michael's history with Sarek. I think Mm -hmm. they purposefully chose that scene of her having an emotional breakdown in this testing chamber to mirror Spock's from 2009. Which, you know, different universes, who knows? But I, I think it's definitely a throwback and it's supposed to make you think of that. And I think just foreshadow a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question surrounding that. Why do you think that Sarek told Michael told Michael about the Vulcan hello, essentially, where um, the Vulcans shot first at the Klingons in order to show that violence brought respect and respect brought peace between the Vulcans and the Klingons? Like, why do you think that he told her? He knows Michael, and I don't think that was a good idea at all. Like, he had to have known what she would have done with that information. Yeah, I'm just curious what you think about that. My opinion is only informed because I've seen the rest of the series, mm-hmm. and I know that... Sarek and Michael have a very close relationship. So my guess is that Sarek cares about Michael and see that she's in distress and gives her the information because mm-hmm. he's genuinely trying to help her because she called him to ask for help. And so even though it's going to hurt her and it's not the right thing to do, mm. he was trying to give her any kind of olive branch he could. And I think he also respects her as an officer and is trying to give her the benefit of the doubt that she will not act rashly even though he knows her i think he also hopes that she will do the right thing with this information Mm. i don't know what do you think i thought of it more as 
a moment of weakness for Sarek. Because he has a strong connection with Michael, he does care about her. He's like, they could die. I have to arm her with this information if they're going to get out of this because he knows Klingons. He knows that their nature is to attack, especially people like the Federation that have such contrary beliefs. And it was interesting because when he talked about how every once in a while there's a great unifier, and I think that he's afraid of what unity between warring factors of Klingons could mean for the Federation and for Vulcan as well. So I think that he's trying to take into account all of these moving parts while dealing with a distressed human the best he can, you know? So I don't know if it was the right choice, but I think it's the most logical choice in that moment for him. In the moment. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to talk also, I mentioned that I didn't like how the Klingons looked, Mm -hmm. but when Michael kills the Klingon on top of the ship, and then they put him away in the casket and mourn for him, and the Klingons lift their heads and they roar Mm. um, to Kalos. I love that, because that's such a staple of Klingon culture that it really made me happy to see that and helped me to remember that these are the same Klingons we know and love. That whole scene with the albino Volk, I have some questions about Mm -hmm. it. Was the Klingon who was murdered by Burnham, was that the torchbearer? I'm pretty sure it was and that's why they were like, oh dip, we need a torchbearer. (laughs) Yeah, so why? Why? Why did he go out there to see what was going on? What? Yeah. Why? This is stupid to send your your only person in command because of the whole houses. What? I think it's because these Klingons are so entrenched in an honor and shame culture society that you can't just send subordinates when you could send a torchbearer. Like, that's not how Klingons work. They need to send their maximum strength, and that means sending the one with the most honor, the one with the biggest reputation, and the one that people look up to, because Klingon society functions so differently than the way that Starfleet functions or Vulcans function. Coming out of this pilot, we don't know a ton about what their motivations are but that would be my explanation for that is it seems dumb to us but to them that's easily the best choice because of course the torchbearer is going to go he has the most honor well and i guess i shouldn't complain because they always sent kirk to the surface (laughs) yeah like that was like a staple so then they're looking for the new torchbearer and Mm -hmm. voke comes and he says i'll be the torchbearer and he does the whole demonstration with the flames yeah i thought that was interesting but Again, I'm just having trouble with it holding my interest. And it's reminding me of the Enterprise pilot where they're just showing us a plot where we don't know anyone and Mm -hmm. we don't care about anyone. We know who the species is. Another Klingon. Yeah. All these writers just always love using Klingons. Mm. Eh. I just felt all those scenes I was just kind of eh about and I was just so excited to get back to see how it was going to resolve with Michael. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Something that annoyed me is that I found it not as realistic that this Klingon who literally said he's from the House of None, yeah, which would mean that he is publicly shamed in the society. And we've seen Worf deal with the... I was just going to talk about Worf. Yeah. The shame he feels. Absolutely. And the public shame that he gets from Klingons. Worf comes from a disgraced house, you know. His father was a disgraced grace was kicked out of the houses <laughs> yeah, i think exactly and so for klingons that's like the highest shame uh that could befall somebody and so i found it just not likely that just sticking your hand in some fire could rally so many klingons around you 
Okay, I do have one possible answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know, though. Because when we see Worf and all of those Klingon episodes in The Next Generation and beyond, yeah. that is the 24th century. And at that mm. point, the Klingon Empire has been around for a long time. All the houses have been together. True. Like we, we see all the, the house leaders frequently come together for the council meetings mm. and who's the leader of the council. <laughs> yeah, blah, absolutely. The Klingon High Command. And... But there's nothing that does not exist. Right at this point, the Klingon Empire is just a ton of random houses. Yeah, it's in fractures. Fighting for power. Yeah. And so I wonder if at that point, you know, your torchbearer is dead, you say, okay, anybody else (laughs) uh, feel like doing this? Because I think that if it wasn't for this second in command, I don't remember his name, but the one who says it's okay for the albino to be the torchbearer, I wonder if they hadn't already had all of these plans set in motion to unite the houses if they would have just given up without the second in command saying, okay, who will be the torchbearer? I I don't know. I I totally know what you're saying, and it doesn't quite fit what we know about the Klingons, Mm -hmm. but I also think they're not developed yet. It's a very good point, yeah. I mean, we don't even know exactly why they're sitting in this rubbish field, except that they're probably luring the Federation for a trap. I also thought it was interesting and just tacks on another factor about Michael's desperation to prove herself and her desperation for control is when she goes towards the unidentified object, she says, well, we came all this way. You know, if I don't Mm -hmm. see what it is, then what's the point? And she's willing to risk her life to discover what this is. And I think this says a lot about her commitment to Starfleet. Starfleet officers are frequently risking their lives just to find something out about science. So (laughs) true. And to make new discoveries and to, new worlds, all that stuff. But I think it's a little too reckless. She says, oh, I have wasted 12 of my 19 minutes, but I'm still going to go in and take a look. Yep. Whereas someone like Saru, who, and he didn't even choose to go, but I think a normal officer is taking a, a safe risk and she's calculated taking, risk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's taking a, an uncalculated risk. She doesn't even have contact with discovery at that no. point. It's good drama, but it also tells you that she is unstable. Yeah. <laughs> That's before she even sees the Klingons. Since you mentioned Saru, I was wondering if we could talk about him real Aww. quick and this yeah. character. Because rewatching this episode, I did not like Saru a second time around. I think the first time I was sort of like, eh, what's this dude doing? Like, he's tall and I've never seen this species before. What's wrong with his little tentacles? And I remember that the trailer loved playing the clip where he goes, Kelpians are meant to sense the oncoming of death. And he's like, I sense it now, you know? Like, it's just so dramatic. Of course, they needed that line as an introduction to Discovery. But I was so disappointed with Saru in this episode because I'm just not used to a character who is just full out afraid of a lot of things. Who's enlisted in Starfleet? Like, yes, we have McCoy, who's mostly just afraid of the transporter. Or, like, we have people who are afraid of specific things in Starfleet, but... We don't have a lot of, like, you know... Truly afraid. Truly afraid of most (laughs) things, which makes him, you know, a good officer because he's cautious. But it also, I think, hinders a lot of his ability to do his job if he's not even going to go out with Michael to have her back up because I think he could have reeled her in a bit and stopped her from killing that Klingon, you know? And there's so many ways that if they had worked together... And I think that's another thing that is both telling about Michael and about Saru, that Michael's a go-off-on-your-own kind of 
person and Saru is not willing to take the risks and so of course we see Saru grow and I love his character don't get me wrong I am only bashing on Saru in this episode because I know how well he develops later on but it's just disappointing to me going back to his roots and seeing that really the Kelpians they were designed to fear these things and I totally understand that I'm a fear-based person naturally so I completely resonate with Saru and I think that's probably why I was more irritated by him because I saw so much of myself in Saru. <laughs> I think that this is a difference of how they're presenting these pilots is that every single one we've seen is a two-parter mm-hmm. except Discovery. From the ones we've reviewed on this podcast we've been reviewing two-parter episodes yeah and so there's a lot more time to set up an arc in the beginning and then watch the journey and then the character has a different arc at the end we see this with tom paris he's the worst Mm. (laughs) at the end of that episode he's the worst but he has a place on the ship um (laughs) you know and i was thinking about this with pike for some reason this episode the vulcan hello was really making me think about the cage and Mm. everything that pike goes through but i think that the character arcs in discovery are long we have a lot longer arcs to contend with and so there's no change in saru from the beginning to the end of this episode because Mm -hmm. there's no time we see him for like 10 minutes yeah total and but i i do think if they had had an hour and a half 90 minute first episode we might have seen a little bit of differences But I also think because this show is structured in binge culture, of course, if you're not watching the premiere every week as they come out, as we're watching now, you can sit down and you can watch four episodes in a row Mm -hmm. if you want to. I think that they care less about creating these mini arcs in these episodes because they know they have a huge path and they have the whole season very, very meticulously planned out. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to, this would be a fantastic eight-hour movie that you could just watch in one long go but i think that the emphasis is just basic setup for saru and i think they were really smart not to have us get attached to the other characters yeah partially is because of what happens in the very Mm -hmm. next episode Mm -hmm. in like the first 10 minutes and partially because they're smart about which characters they want to invest in and how much of the story they want to invest in. And so I think it's okay that they sacrificed us getting to know more of the bridge crew and us having more of a background on Saru. Absolutely. I will say my boyfriend calls Saru crackly guy. Because <laughs> <laughs> he kind of looks flaky and yeah. like a, maybe like a little croissant. Um, <laughs> Saru the croissant. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a little xenophobic, but... Um, <laughs> I felt very similarly. I was kind of alarmed that I didn't know what species Saru was because I've seen so much Star Trek, but also I'm happy that they're introducing new species and I'm excited to learn more about them as we go. Truly, I think that's one of Star Trek's very favorite things in starting new shows is being like, let's add a species no one's ever heard of. That gives them more artistic license and allows them to sort of expand the canon where they don't have to be so careful about it being exactly accurate. Definitely. Before we move on from Saru, I just have to say that Doug Jones, Mm. who's the actor who plays Saru, is one of the most talented actors you've never heard of. And that's literally a headline about him I read a couple years ago. So true. Because he's known and he seeks out roles where he's covered in makeup and you can't tell who he is. I really appreciate that they don't do too much CGI on him because he looks great. He looks amazing. And I think 
as an actor, he really also embodies such an alien with that little like click he does and how tall he is. I just think Doug Jones does a great job and continues to do a great job. Yeah, similarly to how we were talking about John Billingsley last week, that I completely agree. Doug Jones is the same type of caliber of actor who had to forge a path of a species we've never heard of before. Yeah, I think it is a great job. Can I just say, I was talking with some of my friends in the Star Trek group I'm in, and we were discussing the fact that we're kind of of two minds in some people really miss just sort of the 60s, 80s, 90s look of Star Trek. Mm. And some people really embraced the beauty and the effects of Discovery. And I was wondering what camp you're in if you miss the old effects of Star Trek or if you're embracing the new ones. This is a constantly evolving question for me because... I think until I saw Picard, I did not like the new effects and I was not into it. And I was also very confused because Discovery is supposed to be set in the quote unquote 60s. So why does the ship look so good? Yep. (laughs) And that really bothered me. My mind does change frequently. It's because the nerd in me doesn't like it. The nerd in me says, why is the ship so good (laughs) when it should just look like the Enterprise? The Ashlyn who's interested in the behind the scenes stuff is very excited and loves how beautiful it looks. And I also think it's great that we can bring Star Trek into the new era. It's kind of like how when Doctor Who, every time there's a new Doctor, there's new TARDIS. Mm -hmm. I think it's similar with Star Trek that every time there's a new show, they have to do a new ship and Mm -hmm. they kind of say, well, screw you fans who love the continuity. Just have fun. Yeah. (laughs) Enjoy the beauty that we're giving you. Honestly, Ashlyn, you took the words right from my mouth. I don't think I appreciated any of this beauty of the effects until I saw Picard. So anyway, yeah, I just, I completely agree, but it's always an interesting debate to me. Oh, yeah. I think it has to do with getting used to this new Star Trek era that we're in because there are constantly new Trek things happening Mm -hmm. and it's hard to keep up. Which is amazing. That's something I'm (laughs) so happy that I get to say. Such a good problem to have. I feel so blessed to have all these Star Trek problems. Truly. um, (laughs) Where I can't keep up with the shows. But... I think that it does take some getting used to, especially if you're just a diehard OG Trek fan, you know? Well, I might dare say that this is ranking higher on one of my very favorite pilots of the series we've covered thus far. So I wanted to quickly do that before we wrap up. Brianna, tell me of the pilots we've reviewed for this podcast, tell me your order. Okay. So start with your least favorite and go to your favorite. So, last place for me is Enterprise. In sixth place for me is Voyager. Fifth place is The Next Generation. Fourth place is The Cage. Third place is Where No Man Has Gone Before. Second place is Discovery. And first place is Deep Space Nine. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Here's my list. Okay. There's some similarities. Mm -hmm. My last place is Enterprise Broken Bow. Mm Mm-hmm. Six is Voyager. Five is The Cage. Four is Where No Man Has Gone Before. Next is The Next Generation. And then Discovery. Mm. And then Deep Space Nine. Oh, I like that we both 
put Deep Space Nine first. That yes. feels right to me. <laughs> yes, yes. It was a fantastic pilot. Yeah. Yeah. We have Picard next week. Yeah, episode one of Picard, Remembrance, is Ooh. coming at you next week. We're very excited. I am thrilled to review Picard because I have only seen this season once. I have not yes. gone and rewatched any of it again, and I'm really excited to view it through a lens of just looking at the pilot of Picard. Yes. Oh, man. Well, I can't wait. So we're also excited to do our trivia game for the Patreon this week. So Woo-woo. that will be fun. But yeah, can't wait. Rihanna, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure as always. And thank you all for listening to the pod with us this week. And we hope that you are thoroughly enjoying season three of Star Trek Discovery because we sure are. Yes, please. We have been talking about it on Twitter with all of our followers. Please join our conversation. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to say the Vulcan goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please join us next week while we watch the Star Trek Picard pilot. If you like what you've heard today, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the Dura Sisters podcast. And please don't forget to leave us a comment and rate us five stars. If you'd like to donate monthly, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. You'll have exclusive access to our secondary podcast we make for patron members only. Klingon Battle was written by Jerry Goldsmith. Worf's Revenge was written by Artero Voltaire. How many ears does Picard have? Three. A right ear, a left ear, and a final front ear.